There is victory in Jesus. And we sang about his love too. Did you hear that line? He loved me ere or before I knew him. Wonderful, yet hard a concept to internalize. As a result, God, being gracious, sought to help us by giving us an entire book that talks about his unconditional love, even for ones such as us. It's called Hosea. Uh, We began to look into it last week. We'll continue this week. This is Hosea, unfailing love even to unfaithful people like you and I. Just to remind you, Hosea was beginning his ministry. He was a young prophet, and prophets in that day were commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. And prophets of God sometimes proclaimed things. In fact, the office of prophecy consisted even more of proclamation than of prediction, though that was part of what a prophet did for sure. So there was... uh, proclamation and prediction, but also sometimes the prophets of old portrayed things. And that was the description of Hosea's quite costly ministry. God called upon him to put on display his unconditional love, even for rather undeserving people. Some things have to be illustrated because they cannot just be expressed and effectively received. Israel refused to listen to God's clear expression of his love. My people turned away even from their own God. And a loving God continued to extend himself to Israel, in this case, through Hosea and a marriage. Hosea's own marriage. God himself said, "Uh, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman. Her name is Gomer, and she will be unfaithful to you. Can you imagine that? It's a crisis. When you marry, you exchange vows and you count on each other's faithfulness and then sadly in the course of the marriage, one or the other partner sometimes is unfaithful. But what if you knew this in advance? Uh, God told Hosea, this will be the character of your marriage. You will love her, but it will be unrequited. It will not be returned. In fact, your wife at times is going to seek alternative lovers. In fact, she'll birth children. And Hosea said, God, I'm going to consider them to be children of harlotry, which may mean that some of the children uh, born to Gomer were not even fathered by Hosea. And God said, I want the children to be kind of a reminder to wayward Israel of their rebellion. And so God assigned names. He didn't leave the naming of the children up to Hosea. He said, name them this. One was to be named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. And another was to be named Lo-Ruhamah, meaning no mercy. Remember I mentioned to you the Hebrew word lo means no. It negates what follows. So ami means the people. Lo ami, no, you're not my people. Ruhama means mercy. No, uh, there will be no mercy shown to you. And yet this amazing God, this God of rather amazing grace, is bent on the repentance and restoration of his covenant people Israel. And so we read this now in chapter 2, verse 1. 
Uh, say to your brothers, look at this, not lo ami, say to your brothers ami, and to your sisters ruhamah. When you refer to your brothers' names, says God, leave out the low. No more negation of these things. Those who had up until a point been not my people will be my people. Those to whom I showed no mercy because of their waywardness will become ones who are recipients of mercy. The unfaithful people of God, Israel, have a future. That's what verse one to me clearly indicates. And the unfaithful people of God in here. Let's not just point the finger at Israel, let me point the finger at you and me. The unfaithful people in here, and we are, we too have a future. Because as God was and is with Israel, so too he is with all of us who by faith have entered into a covenant relationship through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So this is all portrayed in Hosea's marriage to his rather rebellious wife, Gomer. By the way, what do you expect when you marry a woman named Gomer? I mean, it's not going to be a good thing. So, so, so we read this in verse 2. Contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. It's graphic, but this is a picture of what was going on. Gomer's children are called upon to contend with their mother. Speak honestly to your wayward mother. And if she does not repent, uh, this will be the reality in verse 3. Or I will strip her naked... Now you have to be reading this from two sort of parallel lines of thought. This is about Hosea's marriage to Gomer, but it's a reflection of God's marriage to Israel at the same time. Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I'll make her as vulnerable as when she was a newborn baby. I'll also make her like a wilderness, no fruit, dryness, barrenness, I'll make her like desert land and slay her with thirsts. If Gomer rejects marital responsibilities, she will be denied marital benefits. If Israel rejects her heavenly husband, she cannot have her provision and protection in full measure from him. She will be stripped naked and exposed to sheer and utter helplessness and vulnerability, just like a newborn baby. And verse 4 says, also, I will have no compassion on her children uh, because they are children of harlotry. You know what's perplexing? As you read through Hosea, you see, you almost see God in conflict, if you will allow me. You see a... Uh, uh, a vacillating expression of judgment and compassion. And you find yourself, as you read this, saying, God, which is it? It's both. It's like us. <laughs> when a loved one has been unfaithful, don't you experience fluctuating emotion as well? There's anger, legitimate, 
And then sometimes there's a desire for reconciliation. And that's what you see inter interposed in this book of uh, Hosea. Uh, a very real God with very real emotions uh, goes sometimes from justice to compassion. And so the text goes on in verse five, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who, gave, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. It's my lovers who supply me with all the necessities of life. Listen, let me tell you something. No rejection, no abandonment, no devaluation you have ever experienced or will experience even comes close to the abandonment, rejection, and devaluation that God continues to experience at the hands of his own people. The next time you are offended by unfair treatment, run to Jesus and tell him I'm hurt and I think you can understand. The extent to which God was rejected and hurt to his heart uh, far exceeds any hurt we have ever or will ever experience. I, this is what Hosea's wife uh, said. This is what, in effect, Israel has said to her own God. I'll go after my lovers. I'm leaving home. I'm looking for a more favorable partner. I'll go after my lovers, and you know what? They're the ones who supply me. They give me bread and water and all of these things. And so God responds in verse six. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Well, I guess God is consumed with anger and therefore imposing this punitive action upon Israel. No, 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 it's the opposite. God is not overcome with anger. His heart is breaking. And so he decided to bound Israel's waywardness with a hedge of horns so that if she would attempt to go down this road to her lover's house, it would become painful to her. He did this to dissuade her from her course of action. She had legitimate needs just like you and I, but she was intent on meeting legitimate needs illegitimately and not an angry God, a loving God who doesn't want to share Israel, who doesn't want to share you with any other suitor, decided to hedge her in, throw up walls, so as to deny her access to her other suitors. In the day Israel was going after Baals, the false Canaanite gods, and God said, I'm gonna get in the way and make it more difficult for her to do that. I will limit her access to these partners with whom she's committing spiritual adultery. Why? Because God so loved Israel, he didn't want to share her with anyone. What kind of a partner is willing to share his mate with anyone else? And so God is not willing to do so. And here's what happens, or here's what God intends to happen with this hedge of thorns. Verse 7, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. You see, he tried to get in the way. To, keep, to interfere with Israel's pursuit of her lovers. She will seek them, but she will not find them. Why? Because God has surrounded her with a hedge of thorns, set up a wall, not to cramp her style, not to make her life uh, uh, as an end in itself miserable, but somehow 
to give her the motivation to return to him. And that's what it says. He wants her to say, I'll go back to my first husband. Gomer will go back to Hosea. That's the design. Israel will return to her God. For it was better for me then than now. This is God's purpose in subjecting those whom he loves to a hedge of thorns so as to drive us back to him. Perhaps you're experiencing this right now in your life and you think God is doing this to punish and pain you. No, 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 no. He's doing this to dissuade you from your course of action. He wants to redirect us to him. Someone put it this way. Because God loves us, he often speeds up the process of disillusion. The loving God wants to speed up the process of Israel's disillusion so that Israel might come to her senses and say, oh, I must go back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those I've entered into partnership with and depended on, they're not meeting my needs at all. And verse 8 says, for she does not know that it was I. Can you hear uh, Hosea's heart breaking? Can you hear God's heart breaking? She, Hosea's partner, God's partner, she doesn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. <gasps> Gomer attributed what her true husband had given her to her suitors, and Israel has done the same. And what's more, Israel has taken what God has provided and used it to offer worship to Baal. Now here is how someone sort of fancifully envisioned all this. Some liberties have been taken by the person who wrote this, but you get the idea. Gomer, imagine this, leaves her husband. Uh, she goes off with her lovers. Hosea, her husband, follows after her. He sees her need for the necessities of life. And so he goes off and buys groceries for her, but he does not deliver them to her. He delivers them to her present lover for her. She does not know that her husband was there all the time. The lover takes them thinking the husband is uh, Meshuga Adina. Thinking is a lady from Israel, so. Uh, thinking he's crazy, Homer's crazy. God is irrational. Uh, the lover doesn't get this, but he receives the supply. Gomer arrives home at the lover's home and the lover says, here, these are for you from me. She accepts this, not knowing that all along it was Hosea, not knowing that all along it was God who supplied his covenant partner with the necessities of life. Can you imagine it? Hosea's heart breaks as his bride fails to recognize his love and provision. God's heart breaks when his covenant people Israel fail to recognize his love and provision. And God's heart breaks when people like you and I, the bride of Christ, failed to recognize his love and provision for us.
And God responds in verse nine, therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I'll also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Now why would a loving God, if he's loving, do these things? It is because, if I could put it this way, God's love is not a pampering love. It is a pursuing and perfecting love. That's what it's like. Therefore, Hosea will not abandon Gomer, but he loves her enough to discipline her. And God will not ever abandon Israel, but he loves her enough to discipline her. And God will not abandon you, but he loves you enough to discipline you and me. Now take a look at God's pursuing and perfecting love with regard to Israel in the next few verses. I'll just read through these quickly for you. Verse 10 and on. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Israel forgot her own God. She abandoned him. We would therefore expect that he in turn would abandon her. But we're met with a divine surprise. Would you feast on verse 14 with me? Therefore, I hope I'm not misinterpreting this because it's a surprise. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. (laughs) See, if it said, therefore, I will destroy her. Got it, God, makes sense. Therefore, I will reject and replace her. Understandable, God, you would be justified in so doing. Look what, I'm, what it says. Does your Bible say something similar? Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's omnipotent. He's powerful. He could constrain us to be affectionate towards him or at least submissive to him. That's not what he does. He says, I will do what I could to make myself more attractive to her so that she will return to me. I don't want to coerce her submission. I don't want raw obedience. I don't want submission of a mechanical robot-like kind to my law. I want a response to my heart of love. Therefore, I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and there speak kindly to her. Why is he bringing her to the wilderness? I'll get her away from her lovers. I'll take her to a place where she's not tempted nor distracted by all of the options to me. I'll bring her to a place where she has no choice but to look in and look up. I will do all this because I don't want, I love her, but my love is not a pampering love. Oh no, there are these wilderness times, but my purpose there, I think God is saying, is to pursue her and to perfect her. Here is the heart of God, folks. Here is, would you allow me this phrase? Here is the irrational love of God. It doesn't make sense, which is why you and I struggle with it. 
There is nothing in your life experience or mine in terms of human relationships that is like this. Therefore, it's sometimes water off a duck's back to us. We read of the love of God, but it doesn't stick. I get it in my head, but it doesn't go deep because I have nothing to compare it to. That's right. This is the irrational love of God. Listen, if you're lovable, it's reasonable for someone to love you back. But if you're like Israel, ugly as sin, it's irrational for the God who you cheated on. It's irrational for him to say, still, I will seek to allure her so that she returns to me. And it says in verse 15, then I'll give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor. Achor means uh, trouble. <laughs> um, it was a place where a guy named Achan did some bad stuff. Early in Israel's entry into the promised land, God said, hey, lay off this stuff. Achan said, oh man, I want to keep this stuff for myself. This was a bad deal. So he brought bad stuff upon the people. That happened here at Achor, which means trouble. But God said, the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. You please tell me who could turn trouble into hope. You tell me. Almighty God. Has he done it for you? Has he turned your desperate, troubled past into hope? Have you found out in spite of brokenness and hurt, rejection, abuse, neglect, divorce, whatever, have you found out somehow God has opened up a door of hope where there was just trouble, that's it, you're enveloped by it? Have you tasted the hopeful intervention of the God of all hope. That's what God said he's going to do. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. God will take defeat and shame and turn it into victory. Only God can do that. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my father was an alcoholic. And uh, man, it had him. And oftentimes, he would be uh, consumed by it. And uh, we lived in a low-income kind of a housing apartment thing in New York. And sometimes I would invite kids in the neighborhood to our apartment. But I stopped doing it. Because there my father would be on the floor, drunk. He had fallen. And there he would be lying on the floor. I was just a little kid. My friends would say, Stuart, what's with your dad? And, and I quickly would lie. And I would say, oh, uh, uh, he has a bad back. He, that's what happens when you grow up in those backgrounds. You learn to lie because you're so ashamed. You lie for you. A kid shouldn't have to lie to defend his dad. The dad should defend the kid. That's trouble, man. That's the Valley of Achor for a guy like me. And then I found, no, I didn't find Jesus. Then Jesus found me. I didn't just get forgiveness of sin, but let me tell you, Dianu, that would have been enough. I got more than forgiveness of sin. I got the perfect dad I never had. I got transformation from shame and trouble to the valley of hope. And entirely, only God can do that. And God says, that's what I'm gonna do with an entire people group, Israel. 
Now, verse 16, it will come about in that day. You know what that day means? It hasn't happened yet. It's the future. That means God still has a future plan for Israel. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord. You will call me Ishi and no longer call me Baali. What do those words mean? Ishi means my husband. Baali means my master. God said one day for Israel, uh, she will have such affection and love for me. She will regard me not just as the great beyond, not just the almighty. She will regard me as her husband. She will think of me not just as master, but as husband. Israel's fear will be replaced with love. That's what God wants, by the way. He wants by his grace and mercy for us to turn to him just as if it was a marital bond. That's what God wants. God does not want a fear-based relationship with those who are his. If that's your experience, come talk to one of us. Come talk to us. I think God wants you to have more than just a fear-based. He doesn't want raw submission to laws and ordinances and statutes. Frankly, folks, we can train a monkey to do that. <laughs> he wants romance. Yeah. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. He wants a relationship characterized not by fear, but by affection and love. He wants those to whom he is wedded to think of him as a husband, to be loved in return, not as a master, to be feared. I hope that's the nature of your Christian experience. I hope. By the way, if you've had a dad uh, who was autocratic and uh, strong and powerful and emotionally distant. Um, don't be ashamed uh, of yourself, but I think I can say you're probably gonna have a hard time envisioning your heavenly father to be different than your earthly father. You're probably gonna need some help because you don't do this deliberately, but you're conforming the image of your heavenly father to the image of your earthly father, that's perfectly understandable. And part of the born again experience, it seems to me, is to be reparented by the perfect dad nobody here has ever had. Hey, let me just tell you something, we can help you. Beyond the confines of this room, we can help you one-on-one. -on -one. We can counsel with you. That's what counseling is. We could help you to recognize the throes of your early life experiences and how to preserve consistency, you still are responding to male authority figures, the highest one of which is Almighty God, the same way you responded to earthly authority figures. We could help you to transition and change. We could help you, come talk to us, come talk to us. So verse 17 says, I'm gonna remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. And verse 18, in that day, I will also make a covenant with them. See, in that day. So for those who say God's finished with Israel because at present Israel is finished with God, well, how do you explain Hosea? Hosea 2.18, in that day, that tells me there's still a future for Israel, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. In that day, God says, wayward Israel will be repentant and restored and will dwell 
in a place of peace and security. That's obviously not the case now, but that's Israel's future. Now, I wish I had the words to explain and communicate the potential transformative power of the next two verses. I don't have the words. I'm asking God to bring it home. No mere human communicator can do it. Listen to this. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll tell you what as I read this. Can you please count to yourself the number of times we read that? I will betroth you to me. God is speaking. I will betroth you to me. See how many times that phrase reoccurs in these two verses. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. If you counted correctly, you have seen three times in these two verses, we see the phrase, which is overwhelming, I will betroth you to me. Unattractive, rebellious Israel. Given to unjustifiable spiritual harlotry, God says, I will betroth you to me. When this happened in the ancient land, when a man became betrothed, he would offer gifts to the woman to whom he'd be betrothed as a sign of his genuine interest in her. And the betrothal gifts to be given to Israel by God are things that she, as an unfaithful partner, uh, does not inherently possess. Here they are. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, in compassion, and faithfulness. What God's people simply could not achieve on their own, those will be the betrothal gifts of a loving husband, namely Almighty God. Now, I gotta tell you something. Every weekday morning, Jewish people, men, not on the Shabbat, not on the Sabbath or other holidays, but on other days, we get up in the morning for prayer and we put on something called phylacteries or tefillin. Huh? Adina, these were my grandfather's. Yeah, he would be ever so thrilled to see me unveiling them in a Baptist church. There are straps, I'll show you. But one day we'll do, a, we'll, I'll take time on a Wednesday night to get in more detail about uh, the tefillin, what they signify. Uh, they're black boxes in which is scripture from Torah, from Exodus, and from Deuteronomy. Here, tefillin. One we put on our head, and the other, if you will allow me to... Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to take off too much. It'll ruin your appetite. But, uh, but just a little bit, because I want to show you. Because this one we put um, on our hand, but we, you're not supposed to let it touch your, your uh, garments. So you put it on your left hand, this one. Uh, this also has scripture in it, in this box, you see. Uh, and you, um, 
excuse me, it's this one. You put it on your left hand and the box, the one on the head is supposed to be here between your eyes. It comes from scripture where it says you shall bind this, the word of God, on your mind and on your heart. We didn't just make this up. This is scripture. Now, what was meant to be figurative, our rabbis have made literal. So they came up with the, you know, the boxes. So, but this one, you're supposed to put here on your left hand close to your heart. See, the word of God is to be on your mind and on your heart. This one. And then you take these straps and you're supposed to wrap it around your hand seven times. No? Because seven is an important number in scripture. Three, four, five, six, seven. Then you take the rest and you wrap it around your middle finger and you know what you do? In prayer, you utter these two very verses that we just read. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. We remind ourselves about God's willingness to be bound in a covenant relationship with us and how we are supposed to be respond with grateful and willingness to be bound to him just as if we're married. That's why the strap is wrapped around our middle finger, like a wedding ring. Every day we do this and miss the significance of it, I'm sure. But my fellow believers, don't miss the significance. God desires not just to redeem us. He desires for us to be in a love relationship He's not looking for you to be attractive. <laughs> We're not spiritually attractive. That's not it. He's looking for you to be a willing recipient of his irrational, crazy, mad love for ones like you and I. We don't get it, so we need the book of Hosea, don't you see? It cost Hosea the prophet quite a bit to portray, to illustrate God's inexplicable love. Hosea's bestowed even upon an unworthy uh, partner. God's bestowed upon unworthy ones like you and I. And so he goes on to say, it will come about, verse 21, in that day, again, it's a future thing, that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. God's the command the, going to command the heavens and the earth and the earth, verse 22, will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. In that day, things will be different. God will command the very elements of creation order to a bless his otherwise wayward people, Israel. And folks, this is not about Israel. Don't think it is. It's about the character of Almighty God. If Israel's sin has surpassed God's love, you're next. As I frequently say, you're not so hot either. Simply read a book on church history and you'll see you're just like Israel, as unfaithful as Israel was. You squander your spiritual privileges just like Israel did. You take on the gods of the world and commit acts of spiritual adultery just like Israel did. My people are not unique at all. They're representative of human nature. And what an opportunity for God to put on display divine nature. What's that like? I will betroth you to me forever. 
I'm willing to be bound to you in an unbroken love relationship. Are you willing to be bound to me? And our final verse for tonight says, I'll sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Remember earlier on we read about no mercy? Here's what God says is gonna happen. Oh no, there will be compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, lo ami, I will say, no, 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 ami, you are my people. And they will say, and you are my God. Folks, as with Israel, so too with us. To me, the greatest argument for the eternal security of believer is the book of Hosea. I got great verses in New Testament that say that in a clear way, but this says it in a, in a most powerful way. It's a real story of a man marrying an unfaithful wife and portraying unfaithful Israel and God's faithful response to her in spite of it. This is all about God's unfailing love to unfaithful people like you and me. The next time you doubt it because you've had a rough life and significant others in your life have really not loved you as they ought, the next time you do that and are tempted to transfer all that onto your heavenly father, can you please remember Hosea verse 14 of chapter two, verses 19 and 20? I will allure you to me. Hot on the heels of your rebellion, I will allure you to me. Now it may have to take place in the wilderness of life so that you can hear me, see me, be undistracted by competitors, but I will allure you to myself and I will betroth you to me forever. Could I tell you something? I'm free to do nothing for God and I'm still betrothed to him forever. Now that's a crazy thing to say because if you're really betrothed to him, you want to offer things to Almighty God by way of thank you. But you don't want to offer things to God by way of obligation. That's called religion. This is marriage. This is romance. I don't want to get up in the morning and think I have to pray. I want to say good morning to my heavenly husband. I don't have to. He will say, I've missed you. We haven't spoken in a while, but he will never say, I'm through with you. How do I know that? Because I got the book of Hosea. That's how. Hey, listen, if all this stuff is just kind of foreign to you, sounds good but doesn't fit, let's talk. Let's hang out. Let's just talk through this. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. That's why I call it the irrational, yet very real love of God. Demonstrated in Hosea, demonstrated through the sacrifice of his only begotten son for one such as you and I. If you have not ever really entertained the idea about being in a renewed relationship with Almighty God through Jesus the Son, would you hang out? Let's hang out. When we dis we're gonna dismiss now. Let's hang out. 
I would like to help you to be introduced to this Jesus who comes to you with outstretched arms. Well, they're nail pierced, not a clenched fist, outstretched arms saying, come to me. That's a marriage proposal. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you a lecture. I'll give you a list of do's and don'ts. No. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you shalom. I'll give you rest. As Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, we love you because your love has evoked ours. Thank you for pursuing us even when we were moving in a direction away from you. Thank you for catching up with us. Thank you for affixing your love upon us. Thank you, O oh God, for being distinguished as one whose love is like none other, for yours is not evoked by the loveliness of the object of your love. In fact, it's in spite of it. I think that's called grace. Thank you, amazing God, for your amazing grace. And I pray there be not one person here who doesn't come to taste it, this side of heaven. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.